our series in chapter 3 last week. Uh, if you want to see an outline of the talk tonight and, uh, and use it in any way, there it's on the back of your outline. Uh, take advantage of that. Let's pray. Ask God to help us. Our great God, we thank you for the opportunity this evening to open your word together. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. Please speak to us this evening, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a, uh, a few years ago, one of my sons had major spinal surgery that could have left him a paraplegic. Uh, it was a scary time. There was no guarantee what the outcome would be. And I remember at the time someone saying to me, he'll be fine, I know he will. And I thought, really? How do you know that? How can you be so sure? Now, I know those are words that are intended to be words of comfort, and I can certainly take them in that way. But in the end, they're just empty words. There was no evidence that they could produce to back up those words. Even the doctors couldn't give us those assurances. We were hopeful, but we couldn't be completely confident, completely sure. There's one thing to make big claims, he'll be fine. It's another thing altogether to have certainty, to be sure about something. Now, right from the, the beginning of Luke's gospel, he has told us that he has written, uh, he has written about Jesus to give Christians certainty about who he is and what he has done for us. So who is Jesus? Well, if I'm to give it in a little bit of a, a kind of a nutshell, he is God's promised saviour of the world who has come to rescue people from everything we have ever done wrong and the judgment of God that we deserve. And the Bible teaches us that God will one day come in judgment upon a world that has rejected him. But we're also told that God loves the world that he's created, and so he has sent Jesus in, to bring salvation and forgiveness of sins to everyone who trusts him. And so Luke actually gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. What is God like? What's on his heart? The answer Luke's, Luke gives is salvation. Luke tells us that Jesus is God's eternal, universal saviour. And we see it over and again. So, for example, even in the first few chapters of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verse 31, uh, Mary is told she will bear a son and to call him Jesus, which means God saves. Or in chapter 1, verse 47, at, at the coming of Jesus, Mary rejoices in God, her Saviour. Or again, a little bit later in the same chapter, verses 68 and following, Zechariah the priest says that God has redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. In the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, uh, the angels uh, announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. And that what they say is that a Saviour has been born. And then last week, we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 6, John the Baptist quotes the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament to announce that all flesh will see the salvation of our God. And he introduces us to Jesus. And as the adult Jesus is baptized in chapter 3, verse 22, the voice from heaven declares that this is my beloved son who would fulfill the role of God's servant to bring salvation. And so the point is made again in the genealogy at the end of chapter 3 that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. And so again and again, uh, Luke claims that Jesus is God's son and promised saviour, which is good news. 
It's good news because as we saw so clearly last week, we all need saving. We all need forgiveness. We've all done things we know are wrong. We so often don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And God just can't kind of sweep our sin and our wrongdoing, our rebellion against him under the carpet as if it doesn't matter. Because in the end, that would just be adding to the injustice that has already been done. God doesn't do that. But instead, he sends a saviour to rescue his people and to bring judgment upon his enemies, those who will not receive his salvation and continue to rebel against him. But how do we know that that's true? How do we know that Jesus really is God's promised saviour? How do we know it's not just words, especially given the failures of those who have been described as God's sons before? So, for example, um, you know, those who have been described as God's son before don't really have a very good track record. Uh, right at the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we're introduced to Adam, who's called God's first son, who was to rule God's world under him. But Adam was a failure. He was deceived by Satan, failed to trust God, and he sinned against him. So Adam wasn't up to the task. And then later on in, in Exodus, which is the book that we read from just a moment ago, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God calls the nation of Israel his son. But as we've already seen in our reading from Exodus 16, even after God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, when they're tested in the wilderness, they just grumble against God. They don't trust his promises to them. And so Israel wasn't up to the task. And so the great tension here is, will Jesus be any different? And big claims are being made about Jesus, son of God, saviour of the world. How will we know if those claims are true? How can we be sure? Well, that's exactly why Luke writes, to give us certainty, to give us confidence a real confidence that what took place in history is part of God's eternal plan and purpose. And Luke keeps reminding us of God's promises to send a saviour right throughout the Old Testament it's promised, and now the one who God promised is here, that is Jesus, God's son with whom he is well pleased. See, God wasn't pleased with Adam, he wasn't pleased with Israel, but Jesus is the Son and Saviour that God has promised. And so the purpose of God, right from the very beginning of the Bible, right from the beginning in Genesis, and right through to the arrival of Jesus, um, God's purpose has been being carried out. But how can we be sure about that? Well, in, in our passage today, Luke continues to demonstrate why we can have confidence in Jesus. And we're going to get to the passage itself. Sorry, it's taken a little while to get there, but... Here we're going to see where God's Son is put to the test. So have a look there in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to pick it up there in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. Now notice first that these events are part of God's plan and purpose. That is, it's the Holy Spirit who both leads Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert, and empowers Jesus for what he's about to face. And then secondly, notice the connections here with 
Adam and Eve, uh, the first humans who were tempted by the devil and then failed to trust God. But also notice the connections with the book of Exodus, where the people of Israel, also called God's son, were hungry in the desert after they'd been rescued from Israel. They're hungry in the desert and they refused to believe God's promise to them. They refused to trust him to provide for them. That is, so what we get to here is a question is, will Jesus then, will God's son now, Jesus, be faithful where Adam and Israel failed? Well, here's, what it's, here's what's at stake uh, in the three temptations that follow here in our passage. Now, it's, it's worth being clear, I think, up front, that this passage is not about helpful tips from Jesus to enable us to avoid temptation. That's not what this passage is about, although sometimes it will get used that way. There are lessons here, important lessons, but this passage is not primarily about us. It's about Jesus. It's about giving us confidence in Jesus' identity as the true Son of God and Saviour of the world. So let's just kind of take a, a look at the first temptation. Uh, you notice there, Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days. He's had nothing to eat. And in a huge understatement, we're told he's hungry. Verse 3, the devil said to him, uh, here's, here's what the devil says when he's hungry. He says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, if you have read the Bible at all, you know much about the devil. He is the master of temptation. Uh, so often his temptations actually contain a kernel of truth. And so he actually picks up here on what the voice from heaven had declared about Jesus in chapter 3, verse 22. And he says, so you're the son of God then. Okay, so prove it. If you really are the son of God, there's no need for you to be hungry. Why not just make yourself some bread? I mean, there's even the, the temptation here to doubt God's goodness. I mean, if God really cares, cares for you, then why is he letting you starve? And you and I are vulnerable, I think, to the same kinds of temptations, aren't we? When things aren't going the way that we want them to or that we think they should, when we're struggling or suffering in some way or we're going through particular trials that we find difficult to understand, we're often tempted to doubt God's goodness, sometimes to doubt exactly what he's told us about himself in his word and to really doubt God. You see, the temptation here is for Jesus to look out for number one, to use his power to serve himself. But Jesus, remember, is going to tell us a little later on that he has come into our world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You know, the, the key to actually understanding this temptation, as well as the next two, is to see that every answer Jesus gives to the devil comes from the book of Deuteronomy uh, in the Old Testament. And so Deuteronomy actually means second law. It's actually, the book of Deuteronomy is a restatement of the law that God gave through Moses for man to live by, for mankind, all of humanity to live by. Now Jesus, remember, had come in the flesh with all of uh, humankind's limitations to identify with humanity so that he could save us. And so the devil tempts him to put his own needs above obeying God. And notice that Jesus answers him there in verse 4 from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. He says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. 
And then if you read on in that, Deuter- that verse in Deuteronomy, it continues, man may not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, where Adam and Israel had failed, Jesus chose faithfulness to God over self-preservation. I don't live for bread, I live on God's word. And it'll be the same for us. If you trust in God, your faith will be tested in this world. If God doesn't stop us from being tempted or tested in some way, the question for us, though, is, will God's word be all that I need? Will I be able to trust him? Well, his second temptation comes in verses 5 to 7. Let me just pick it up there at verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now what's clear here is that the devil believes the same things about Jesus that God does. He is God's beloved son. He is the one whom God has promised will receive all glory and authority over his eternal kingdom. Now, I don't know if you've seen some of those kind of massive lines uh, on weekends at rental properties uh, recently. Uh, Leonie and I were out the other day and uh, we saw a whole bunch. We first didn't know what it was. Uh, About 100 people in a line. We spoke to a couple of people in this particular line uh, looking at the same property and we said, what hope do you have? I mean, you're almost at the back of the line. What hope do you have of getting this property? And they said, the only way to get what you want is to make a better offer. And so the devil is here, I think, trying deceitfully to make Jesus a better offer. Essentially, Jesus has two offers on the table. I mean, have a look at Psalm 2 with me for a moment. It's going to be there on your screen. Uh, verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 2. This is, this is what we read. Uh, God speaking of, of, the, of uh, his saviour, of his king. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, here is what God has promised his son, Jesus. Except that, for Jesus, his rule of God's eternal kingdom would come only by way of the cross. Because only by his crucifixion could God's son and servant bring salvation. Now, the devil's offer, on the other hand, seems very similar Though any power that Satan has is limited and temporary, often the way he works, he promises things that he can't deliver, but the basis on which he offers it here is very different. The devil is offering Jesus a way out of suffering. If you worship me, I'll give it all to you now without the cross. See, God's purposes for all humanity would be derailed. Satan's offer is a direct challenge to the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall worship no other God, it says in Exodus 20, verse 3. And so Jesus responds in verse 8 with the words of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 13. See what he says there in verse 8? And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus reaffirms his obedience to his Father's word and his commitment to our salvation. You see, this is a temptation that Jesus had to resist throughout his life. 
Now, you might remember even his own apostle, the apostle Peter, when Peter realized that Jesus was God's Messiah, the Christ who had come to, to, to save the, to rule over the world, Jesus told him that he was to first suffer and be put to death. And the apostle Peter said to him, don't be stupid. You're the king of God's kingdom. You don't have to die. And remember what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God. And then even as Jesus hung on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, people mocked, calling out to him, if you're really the son of God, come down from there and prove it. See, Jesus was obedient to God, even to the point of death. And aren't we thankful that he was? Because if he did come down, as they challenged him to, then none of us would be saved. Uh, Look at how Paul puts it, the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 11. He says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus shows us that it's better to have God than anything in the world. No matter what trials and temptations and struggles we face, it is better to have God. Well, Jesus' third temptation is like all of them, really. Don't trust God's word. Let me just pick it up at verse 11. And he took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now clearly the the devil knows the Bible too, only obeying it isn't his strong point. I mean, here's an example of the devil deliberately twisting scripture to his own evil ends. He takes Jesus, in some way, up to the highest point of the temple, uh, evidently around about 100 metres above the Kidron Valley below, and he quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And he says, in that passage, it contains a promise of God to protect those who trust him if they come across any danger. And so if Jesus is truly God's son, surely God won't let him suffer pain. Surely he can jump and not worry. In fact, it it might even enhance his dependence on God and the way that people view him. But it's worth saying out loud, I think, just because the Bible is being used doesn't mean it's biblical. Now, Satan may be the supreme exponent of scripture twisting, but can I say he has plenty of minions. I mean, even this week, the hierarchy of the Church of England Uh, have voted to bless same-sex unions. By twisting the Bible's teaching on God's love, they have obliterated the Bible's clear teaching on marriage. It's tragic. It's misleading. It's damaging the truth of God's word that brings true life and true love. I mean, the devil always had his supporters. It's just so sad that some of them still do his bidding within the church. Not just on this issue, of course, there are many issues and ways in which the devil tries to deceive. 
But Jesus corrects the devil's misuse of Scripture here, verse 12. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That is, he quotes from Deuteronomy again in chapter 6, verse 16, and he refers him back to the passage that we read earlier in Exodus 15 and 16, where the people of Israel uh, were testing God by grumbling and questioning whether he was with them in the wilderness or not. And on that, that occasion, God responded with grace and love to his son, the people of Israel. He provides for them like he promised he would, but he also responds with a test for them. He says, uh, he responds with this test, he says, to see if they will walk in my law or not. Will they believe God's word? Will they trust God even when things are hard? See, the devil wants Jesus to test God's promise to prove that he really is God's son. But Jesus doesn't need any more proofs that he is God's son. He trusts God's word. He trusts God's promise. And he will not disobey God by putting him to the test. See, Jesus doesn't cave in to Satan, which gives us real confidence in God's saviour. See, what is Jesus doing? What can I say? What he's doing is he's deliberately emptying himself of his power and glory. And he is putting himself in the position of man, of humankind. A man under the authority of God's word. See, what we're seeing here in the temptations of Jesus, for the first time in the universe, is a man confronted by Satan and standing firm. This is a new man, not Adam, not Israel, but Jesus, the Son of God. See, no human has ever been able to resist the temptations of the devil. No human has ever obeyed God perfectly. But here is humanity, as humanity was meant to be. Here is a man who is altogether righteous. He's a man who never loses his relationship with God because of sin. Instead, Jesus actually overcomes Satan by his unswerving obedience to the word and will of God. And so we can have real confidence that what took place here in history is part of God's eternal plan and purpose to bring salvation to the world through his proven son and saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, this, of course, isn't the end of it. Verse 13 reminds us that uh, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. See, the crucial conflict was still to come at the cross, whereby his death for our sin and his resurrection to life, it would ultimately lead to Christ's victory and our salvation. And so here is the one who has come to defeat Satan. And we've already seen how many times the word salvation and saviour is actually used of Jesus. And so here we have, breaking into human history, God himself as saviour. But he's not just our own personal little saviour, he's my saviour. He is that. But he's much more than that. Jesus has come to deliver humanity from the grip of Satan by delivering us from sin. And so can you see just how important Jesus is? He's relevant for everyone, no matter where you come from, no matter what religious persuasion you may have been raised in. 
and he's essential to every person who ever sets foot on this earth. There is no other saviour. There is no other salvation. There is nothing more precious than having Jesus as your king. But here's the question for us today. How will you respond to God's word about Jesus? I mean, if you've, if you've never responded to the salvation that you are being offered, even now, as we sit here, why not do it today? If you've thought about it, put us to the side, think about it later. I think it's too much trouble trying to work out what it's all about. Of course, you can go to life. Come and chat to Josh, come and chat to myself or the person with you tonight. But if you're already a Christian, and can I just say the very best proof of your love for Jesus is obedience to his word. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. So here is the absolute confidence that you and I can have in the worth of Jesus as the one who is our saviour and we can trust him. I just want to conclude by giving you the words of a song that I think starts to understand the worth of Jesus. Let me just read it to you. I think it's on the screen. It just says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with great thankfulness that you love the world so much that you sent your own Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world as our Saviour. Father, we know that we struggle to obey you the way that we should. We know that there are many things in our lives at times that we struggle with when it comes to sin. But we also know, Lord God, that you love us and that we have a Saviour whose death and resurrection has paid the penalty for our sin and offers us new life, forgiveness, freedom, hope for, the, for eternity. So, Father, we pray that we would be a people who would rather have Jesus than anything else. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Hello. We're going to sing again. We're going to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast.